Hanks, a dorso, and a torso, even more so. Oh, just me then. Next week, it's one of those key areas of science that just keeps coming up again and again, but we'll keep looking at and listening to the mathematics of Tibetan singing bowls. Material World was presented by Quinton Cooper and the producer was Martin Redfern. If you were an intelligent designer, would you combine the food processor with the word processor? That's the question Stephen Fry asks next as he takes a look at speech and the mouth in Fry's English Delight. Before that, Ritla Shah is here with a preview of the latest news and analysis in the world tonight. Well, tonight we try to unpick the latest slew of allegations emerging from News International. The royal family and Gordon Brown are among the latest figures to be caught up in the hacking scandal. Carl Bernstein, the man who helped to uncover Watergate, tells us why he believes there are parallels with the downfall of Nixon and the troubles besetting Rupert Murdoch's empire. Also, we hear from Tunisia, where six months after the start of the Arab Spring, there's disappointment about the pace of change and we speak to the leader of Southampton City Council and the unions as council workers there choose between a pay cut or redundancy. That's all tonight at 10. Thanks, Rittler. Now in a new series of Fry's English Delight, Stephen Fry puts his money where his mouth is with more reflections about our mother tongue. Mother indeed. Monster, more like. The tongue has a life of its own, literally and metaphorically. Imagine yourself to be a flake of fugitive muesli untouched by the morning toothbrush. I mean, it would be quite terrifying because, of course, the tongue is a massive organ which is rising and falling, going backwards and forwards all around you all the time. Luke Cascarini is a consultant oral maxillofacial surgeon. In relative terms, there will be a huge volume of saliva sloshing past you all the time also full of debris, which will be flying around past you. The sides of this huge cave you're in will be moving in and out, and also to be saliva pumping from the parotid ducts down onto you, flowing down the sides and across you all the time. And eventually, you will have stimulated that pain or sensory fibre long enough that the tongue will find you with its tip. It'll curl around and find you, and it'll prise you out from that gap and if you're big enough, grind you first. If it detects that you're small enough, which is an amazing thing to do, it'll just throw you to the back of the tongue and swallow you. Yet which of its two important functions is the most complex? I think eating is the most complicated thing that your tongue does because you've got these teeth going up and down, food moving around everywhere, and your tongue is ducking in and out between these teeth, moving food from one side to the other, clearing it up, sending it to the back, and it's expected to stop food flying out of your mouth, which is a tremendous achievement. You're breathing as well, which is quite an amazing thing to do, all going on through the same area. When your tongue is moving, it has to have a feedback to the brain telling the brain where it is at any one time, otherwise it can't control it. And that is very subconscious. Now, if you were an intelligent designer of sentient beings, would you combine the food processor and the word processor into one dual-purpose unit? What is the evolutionary history of this whole we call cake? 
And is there a connection between what goes in and what comes out, so to speak? As communication device, the mouth deals with much more than words. Psychologist Deesa Zorta from the Max Planck Institute in the Netherlands. We have very good control of very fine muscles in our mouths. And that's probably partly, at least thanks to our very complex vocal speech system. Um, and some of these same muscles can then be used for other things, like playing a musical instrument or expressing feelings. Breathing, speaking, eating, tasting, aesthetic, cosmetic, kissing, and sexual. Have I missed any? No, I don't think so. Uh, though lecturer Lorraine Braggins from the City Lit in London will be adding a different function of speech. I often get asked at parties, as soon as somebody says, what do you do? And I say, I teach lip reading. And the next question is always, so what, what are they saying over there? And they point to someone about 50 feet away. So, a distinguished panel of horses' mouths, and by no means least, evolutionary biologist Philip Lieberman, who is truly the world's greatest oral historian, because it is he, more than any other, who estimated the length of time that human hardware has been capable of doing what I am doing now, which started among hominids about 50 to 80,000 years ago. The uh, tongue, which initially, in a, let's say in a newborn or ape, isn't a long, thin body entirely in the mouth, and then the tongue begins changing its shape. Mouth is getting shorter, and the tongue is moving down into the throat, so it produces this uh, vertical section, and that's what you need to produce uh, vowels like an E or an U, or for that matter, an A. E, U, and A. Sounds that were tens of thousands of years in the making, finally made possible by the apparatus that Lieberman described and dated to between 50 and 80,000 years ago. Vocalizations modified above the vocal cords in the supralaryngeal vocal tract, or SVT for short. Human SVTs are uniquely divided into two equal sections, one horizontal in the head, one vertical in the throat. At its centre, the huge, shape-changing tongue is anchored, capable of making tenfold changes in diameter of the whole tract and allowing us the minute filtration changes that mean we can say ooh or ah and mean it. You need a equal length of the tongue in the mouth and equal length in the throat and have to be almost right angles. See, that's the uh, arrangement we have. This is a time stamp. The uh, formation of the modern tongue is a time stamp and this time stamp corresponds with the time stamp uh, you get from archaeology. You look at what people were doing in this period and you start seeing rapid changes occurring about 90,000, 80,000, the pace picks up 50,000 years ago. You have tools, complicated tools. You begin to see statues you can put in a museum today, in a museum of modern art. They look great, okay? 
and it's all finished. You know it's all there. Professor Philip Lieberman, who showed through examination of fossils that the slow descent of the larynx was the finishing touch for the mouth and for humans. The symmetry between SVT1 and 2 means balanced equipment that can produce this. This is Piccadilly Circus. Change here for the Bakerloo line. This is the mouth of Julie Berry, who has gained a kind of fame by achieving a perfect equilibrium between her SVT1 and 2. It's part of my job as a, as a voiceover artist to provide this very balanced sound and to, to give you a voice that really has no geography um, and that's very easy to listen to, very well-rounded um, and is not imbalanced in any way. We're all unique vocally and that depends a lot on the size and shape of our resonators, our amplifiers for our voice. And it also depends on the balance of those resonators so that all of them are nicely tuned in, so to speak. And if you get one that is uh, more prominent than another, then you will get a sort of an imbalanced sound and that will give you a very different sounding voice. So imbalance helps create distinctive voices. Mrs Thatcher took larynx lowering a bit too far. She opened up the back of the mouth and you got this rather extraordinary overweight of pharyngeal resonance which gave her that the lady's not for turning, that very open at the back of the throat kind of sound. And the other side of that particular coin, I suppose, would be someone like, say, Kenneth Williams, who would do the exact opposite and close off the back of the tongue and the soft palate. So it would all come through the nose. And you get a nose, stop messing about, and that very nasal sort of twang. Professor Philip Lieberman, who mapped its evolution, started out by asking himself an important question. I was sitting in a bathtub, I think it was 1960. Not 68 or something like that and listening to a program on uh, chimpanzees and someone said that chimpanzees couldn't talk and it suddenly occurred to me why can't they talk so what I did was I went down to the Prospect Park Zoo in New York with a tape recorder and recorded chimpanzees and we found out that in fact they never produce sounds like e or oo or ah and that sort of got me interested. Why couldn't they do that? So we started looking at uh, the anatomy. And to our surprise, we discovered they have a very different tongue than us. I didn't realize that. And it was even more surprising uh, that uh, we all have chimpanzee tongues when we're born. So newborn infants have a tongue that's sitting entirely in the mouth. And the tongue of every animal on Earth except us is set up for swallowing food, optimally. That earlier question about food processor and word processor in one unit isn't as glib as it sounds. The theory that the development of the complex process of eating provided an evolving framework for speech has been scientifically proposed and vigorously debated. Our surgeon earlier said eating is more complicated mechanically than speech. That theory has been tested. In 2002, scientists made an X-ray video of a diversity of vocal tracts while their owners read this piece of immortal prose designed to use every gob-shaped sound in English. You wish to know all about my grandfather. Well, he is nearly 93 years old. Yet he still thinks as swiftly as ever. He dresses himself in an old black frock coat, usually several buttons missing. A long beard that clings to his chin. 
giving those who observe him a pronounced feeling of the utmost respect. When he speaks, his voice is just a bit cracked and quivers a trifle. He plays skillfully and with zest upon our small... Morgan, except in the winter, when the snow or ice prevents, he slowly takes a short... The same scientists then made X-ray videos of people eating a diversity of foodstuffs. Hard-boiled eggs, oysters, cream crackers, celery... Comparing the videos, these scientists found the movements of tongue and associated parts less complex during speech. Cue more debate about origins and origins. The coordinations and rhythms of speech, you might imagine, are far the more complex and subtle than the actions of the hungry tongue serpent. One area which is demonstrably factual the evolutionary benefits of language, rooted in the shape of our mouths and the sight of our tongue, outweigh an evolutionary deficit, a design fault. We, unique among mammals, face a higher danger of choking because of how our mouths and throats developed to enable speech. Indeed, choking to death is, in the United States, the fourth most common cause of accidental death among human beings, not chimps, but they can't speak. Um, yes, well, as you might be able to hear, we, we do have a, a primate in the studio, and uh, he does seem to, well, to understand what we've been saying, because... Uh, you say uh, that uh, the chints can't speak, well, but what about sign language, eh? Have you never watched BBC too? Yes, sign language I mean, is a full language. It's more than just a series of gestures. As I understand it, um, chimpanzees are capable of 64... Five or six gestures? Is that how can those gestures be used in a way that is approximate to language? Can can you, as a chimpanzee, um, say, "I'll meet you at that place we had lunch the day after tomorrow" in gestures? Uh, no, I can do lunch. You can. <laughs> glad you can do lunch. It's quite tricky for me because I'm hitched to a ventriloquist and she doesn't have arm rods, so I can't actually move these. Uh, Anyway, Stephen, enough of that. What's Hugh Laurie really like? Dear, dear. I was hoping that we could keep that little trick back, the fact that our spokesprimate is, in fact, the um, companion of ventriloquist Nina Conti, who is all too conscious of the significance of mouths. Hello, Nina. Hello, Stephen. Because it seems to me that gestures are very good at pointing to things that are in the room, like um, a microphone. You can point to that microphone, I'm sure. Yeah, well... Brilliant, as well as any human. Yes, but the evolutionary benefit of being able to use your mouth for complex communication, leaving your hands free, is what we're talking about. Hominids developed it. Neanderthals and chimps didn't. All right, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, and fry anything. It comes out with something that totally befuddles you. Well, no, no, no. That's not to say that chimpanzees in the wild don't use their mouths to communicate non-verbally as we do. Oh, in the wild. I wouldn't know in the wild. I never get further than East Finchley. Non-human primates use their mouths to express, for example, emotional signals to each other. Deezer so Sorter, psychologist. Um, lip smacking, they have other expressions like the fear grimace, which is shared with human beings, of course. We also have a fear grimace where we show our, our teeth. Um, 
They also have a play face, for example. So many other non-human primates have shared with humans the play face, which is an open-jawed kind of smile. <laughs> yes, quite. And it's actually thought to be the same expression that we produce when we laugh. So it's, it's the laughter face, if you like. So the outer mouth, just as important in the development of communication and language as the inner. And in a way, the human smile at six weeks into a human life is the first trace of language. But is the smile innate? Desasorta. We're born to smile. In a sense, that is true. The amount and kind of input that you need in order to learn to smile, if you like, is minimal, probably. It just requires being around humans that occasionally smile at you. And if you have that, then very, very quickly, within six weeks, you start to learn to smile. So it really is one of the earliest social behaviours, and it's really focused on the mouth as a way of communicating very clearly our enjoyment of a social interaction, which is incredibly important for a young infant. Blind infants also do smile, so it's not necessary to see other individuals' smiles. However, it does tend to develop slightly later, and their smiles are a little bit unusual sometimes, at least in infancy, um, compared to seeing infants. This is why I would say that there is probably a role for what you're seeing, but even without any input, you will develop a smile anyway, even if you've never seen anybody else smile. And it will happen quite early in your life as well. So that does suggest that there is an innate component to the human smile. So what we have here is a kind of duality. The mouth seems to have a complicated life of its own, an unconscious, hardwired life. And yet it's the centre of our most conscious activity, speech. Well, one person who exploits this, puts it into reverse, is comedian and ventriloquist Nina Conti, uh, whose companion, Nina, we have already met. Uh, when you started to learn ventriloquism, what did you find out about the natural instincts of the mouth? I found the mouth completely ungovernable because what it's desperate to do is reflect the meaning of what you're saying, just with expression, and to devolve that and become impassive while your puppet is talking is very, very difficult because it so wants to express what the puppet's saying. The emotions of the monkey want to be worn on your face. Then you have to go through that phase of looking like a half-wit who's sort of impassive. At least that's better than looking angry while monkey's being angry. Is that a harder technique than the one that really puzzles us? The fact that you can say mummy and bottle without m your lips meeting? Yes, that doesn't take very long because you're just using substitute letters for B's and P's and W's and so on. For this, this disconnect, I suppose mostly it must be a question of practising how to unlearn what nature has, has forced into us. Yes, it's highly complex, Nina. It is an end-of-the-clear art form. Why are you making a chance or highfalutin? Well, it did take a lot of learning to start to disassociate my own feelings from monkeys. And now she thinks I'm real. As soon as I start to think about it, it all breaks down, doesn't it, Nina? It's very difficult to think about what I'm doing. It's so much easier just to do it. And the strange thing is, here I am in the studio, and when, when it's you talking, I'm looking at your mouth, Nina. And when it's the monkey talking, I'm looking at monkey's mouth talking. It's my mouth that's actually important, isn't it? Well, the, the real, you know, hard audiences to crack at the ones who spend their time staring at my mouth and miss all the fun. 
on. But it's actually um, monkey's mouth that's more important in my act, as long as it's in sync. Now, we've been told by scientists that the, the trade-off that nature has given us in our ability to speak is uh, that we are more likely to choke than other animals because of the positioning of our larynx and the nature of our, our loquacity. Now, you, you, you do, like many great vent acts, uh, a glass of water trick. Does that, does that involve more danger to you than it would to others? Yes, it's very dangerous what you can do it, yeah. Really? Yeah, really. It's a sad thing for you humans that you can't talk and eat at the same time without dangerous death. Yes, it it does put us rather at a disadvantage when it comes to a a, a banana party. (laughs) Nina Conti and Monkey Conti, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. What an honour. Now, so far, we aren't entirely being true to our purple shiny wrapper. This is Fry's English delight. Are there observations on English and mouths? It's interesting that they refer to the English smile as the stiff upper lip, because the upper lip is not, in fact, what distinguishes the English smile from, say, the American smile. On the contrary, it's the sides of the mouth that the English, when they smile, tend to pull back and almost down. If you think about how Prince Charles smiles, for example, it's a very prototypical English smile. On the contrary, For example, um, Tom Cruise is a very good example of an American smile, which tends to show almost only the upper teeth. And so the upper lip is not what's going to tell you if the person is English or American, but there's some tentative evidence suggesting that people may be able to distinguish them. Um, There's been some research into this by Dacca Keltner, who's a professor at UC Berkeley. He's an American psychologist who studies um, emotional expressions with the mouth and the face, uh, specifically positive emotions. And he's suggested that there is such a thing as an English smile. Now, I think there's no trouble for English individuals to understand American smiles, but what you may find is that Americans may misinterpret English smiles as some sort of grimace. It could probably mean submission, but without joy. Someone said to me the other day that they find Americans easier to lip read than English people because Americans tend to move their mouths more. They're not so reserved as we are. I think the British, we tend to move our mouths not quite so much because we're a little bit embarrassed that it looks a bit brash if we speak like this. Lorraine Braggins, lip-reading lecturer who specialises in educating people with hearing impairment, bearing out that English mouth theory. And it's not just the hearing impaired who rely on reading mouths. We've stepped out of the studio and into a a busy street to record this bit, and uh, our sound engineer is grimacing a bit at the loss of clarity. Yet, if this were television and you could see my lips move, the lower quality would be perfectly acceptable. Uh, Lip-reading expert Lorraine Braggins. Everybody lip-reads. Right from the word go, from when we're babies, we're looking at people's faces and we're making the connection between what we hear and what we see. If we see a video clip where the auditory track is out of sync with what we see on the face, we notice it straight away and it actually makes it quite difficult to to hear it sometimes. When we're lip reading, we might be able to pick up some of the consonants that we can see, such as a sh, a b, a v, some of the ones that are easier that are on the front of the mouth. And it's vital 
to be able to pick up the consonants because in English it's the consonants that give words their meaning. The vowels tend to give English its rhythm but we get meaning from the consonants. So if I say fish and chips, if you can see the f, which you can, and you can see the sh, and you can see the ch, and the ps on the end, you d it doesn't matter if you can't lip-read the very short i vowel, because fish, if you've got fish and you've got chips, your brain will fill in the gaps and you can make sense of it. It's why when we text, we text with the consonants and not the vowels, because the consonants are what give the shape and meaning to words. There's actually a phenomenon called the McGurk effect, uh, named after the chap who first identified it. And you can try this out on the internet, actually. There are actually examples of it that you can look at. And what it is, is a face mouthing some syllables. But the, it's been dubbed with a track that is mouthing different syllables. So the face looks like it's saying gar, 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 but the auditory track says bar, bar, bar. Now what happens when we watch it is we are convinced that the person is saying either gar, 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 or sometimes da, 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 but we certainly don't think they're saying bar, 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 because we're actually using what we see. If you then close your eyes, you can clearly hear that they are actually saying a b, bar, bar, bar. You look at it again thinking, well, now I know that he's saying bar, bar, bar. Obviously, I'm going to be able to tell. But in fact, your brain tricks you and you still look at that video clip sure that he is saying either gar 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 or da 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 and what this tells us is that we actually even with normal hearing rely an awful lot on visual articulatory information so we don't just use one sense to perceive speech we use a combination of senses Ever read a story where the police, see what we're doing there, draft lip-readers in to solve a crime, or um, read some royal lips on a distant balcony, or, or see what the ref is really saying to that player who's getting a yellow card? It's a very, very difficult skill to acquire. You need, ideally, to be sitting about three or four feet away from somebody, you need them to be looking at you and you need to know the context. If you don't know the context, it's very, very difficult to grasp what somebody might be saying. There's so much potential for ambiguity. The potential for making a, a dire error is quite considerable. There's actually a, a field called forensic lip reading where experts lip readers are called upon to interpret video footage for, let's say, the police. But it's quite a controversial area because there is this potential for error and usually they will get uh, a group of lip readers together to actually try and confer and agree what was said. And there is a, a project actually underway at the moment 
at the University of East Anglia to develop a computer-based system that can actually lip-read. So they would map the movements of the face and develop um, software that that can actually lip-read from video footage. Uh, So that's where it's heading at the moment. And that would obviously be enormously helpful for police or people involved in legal cases where they needed to actually have some accurate lip-reading of what has been said. But I think we're quite a long way off that being perfected yet. The final step in the evolution of the mouth. It becomes legible by a machine. Fry's English Delight was produced by Nick Baker and presented by Stephen Fry. It was a Tesco's production for BBC Radio 4. Oh, I could get used to this. Can I do another one? Fried not monkey, that's my job. Though there is more from the mouths of monkey and monkey's mind Anina Conti in an extended interview with Stephen Fry at the BBC Radio 4 website where there are details of the McGurk test too. Next week, brevity. Over on BBC Radio 4 Extra now, there's the Comedy Club right through to midnight, starting with I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Here on Radio 4, a quick look at tomorrow's weather. Early fog and mist patches will soon clear to reveal a day of sunshine and showers for most with light winds. The showers will mainly affect western UK, with some becoming heavy and perhaps thundery during the afternoon. It'll become increasingly cloudy and windy in far southeastern UK, with occasional rain in parts of the south. And the outlook for Wednesday and Thursday, both days will be mainly dry and fine with sunny spells. The sunshine may be preceded in some spots by early mist in the light winds, with a small chance of further interruptions as one or two isolated showers develop during the afternoon. And that's the forecast. On 92 to 95 FM, 198 Longwave and Digital Radio, this is BBC Radio 4.